In this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. We got home um, that night and we were eating dinner and I was like, hey, uh, I forgot the ring. I lost it. Um, I forgot at the cabin. And he's like, really? The, the ring that I like almost lost my life to buy you? And I'm like, yep, that one. I'm like, but I know where it's at. It's on that stump. Don Urbeck shares a story about the hazards of bringing jewelry into the wilderness, and I share the story of the most dangerous case of a misplaced item in my life. The surgeon walks into the room, leans over to me, and says, well, we messed up. Except he didn't use the word messed, he chose a word that had a little bit more of a finer point on it to better describe exactly what had happened. Lost and found. Up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, I'm Rob Prince. Welcome to Season 8 of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. Losing stuff can really sting, but finding it again can be quite the rush. I can remember when I lost my wallet in a couch cushion when I was about 11 years old. I was pretty well freaked out, even though I can't imagine what important things I could have had in there as an 11-year-old. Maybe about $7 in a baseball card. I don't know. But I was very happy when I got it back. And the longer the time period between when you lose something and when you get it back, the more miraculous it seems when it's returned to you. In today's episode, we have two stories about items being lost and then found sometime later. Our first story comes from Dawn Urbeck, whose story adds new meaning to the phrase diamond in the rough. She told this story at our February 2022 live event in Fairbanks. My name is Donna. I'm going to tell you a story about a ring and a guest book from a public use cabin. So back when I was 19, I was going to UAF, and my boyfriend at the time decided that he needed to go fishing on a fishing boat to earn some money. He was eight years older than me. He knew what he wanted to do in life, so he went and made some money. And uh, that's, that fishing season was quite hard that year. They had really bad weather. Um, and I would talk to him once a week, and he's like, I don't know if I'm going to make it home. This is really you know, horrible weather, horrible fishing. And so he made it home, um, he made it back to Fairbanks, and for, so for that summer we went to my hometown to make money to work, and um, he ended up asking my dad for my hand in marriage, and I didn't know this yet. Um, they kept it a secret, which I was really surprised, um, for a couple of months, and then we came here to, to go back to UAF, and we, um, it was summertime, it was the end of summer, and um, we got back from Kotzebue. We went to a, a friend's cabin. There's a lot of cabins in this story. We went to a friend's cabin on the Kenai River, and we had a nice dinner. It was beautiful, and he, after dinner, he goes, do you want to go for a walk with me? And I'm like, sure. You never want to go for a walk after dinner, but okay. So we get ready to leave um, the cabin, and the friends that were staying with us said, there's a, there's a lot of bears in the area. You better take this gun. 
And my boyfriend was like, I don't really want to, but okay. So they just shove it in the back of his pants. So here we are walking down. We went for a nice walk, and then we went to the river, and the sun was setting, and it was you know, beautiful, and we walked onto the metal grate um, where people used to fish off of, so it hangs over the river a little bit. So we walk up there, and he's saying, you know, life is short. You know, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you you know, all the, the fun stuff that you say when you're going to propose. And so then he starts getting down on one knee, and I'm like, oh, oh boy, you're on a metal grate, and you're getting down on one knee, and he starts pulling something out of his pocket, and it's the ring not in a box, and he's like shaking, and he's like, will you marry me? And I'm like, of course, grab the ring. I'm like, yes, okay, the ring is not going to fall in the river, right? So this is the first event of this little ring's life. So um, it was very beautiful, I loved it. It was very delicate and had diamonds on it and it was precious, you know, and I was wearing the ring and my friends would compliment, it's so pretty, you know, it's so nice. And, um, but I had a habit of taking it off because when I would like fillet fish, I didn't want to get fish guts in it or when I would make moose burger. So I'd take it off, put it back on, of course. Um, but then the summer was coming to an end. We wanted to go to a public use cabin. So we got one of our friends to come with us. Um, it was out on Chena Hot Springs Road. So we hike up to this cabin, and it's a late summer, um, beautiful weather. We spend two nights at the cabin. We do all the public use cabin stuff, you know, like stay up late, play cards, write in the guest book, you know. So we did all that. And then right as we were getting ready to leave, we... I wanted to get a picture of us three before we left, and this was before iPhones, so I had this big clunky digital camera that I wanted to get the picture of us standing in front of the camp cabin, so there's this really nice stump that they used to chop wood on, you know? So I get the camera set up on the stump, and the camera just needed to be tilted just like a tiny, like five degrees up. And so I'm looking around, I'm like, there's no rocks, there's no good rocks around here, no sticks. And I'm like, hey, my ring, I can use my ring. So I put my ring underneath the camera and it's a perfect angle, set it the 10 second timer. You know, we're all standing around getting ready for the 10 seconds to be over. And then this swarm of bees starts swarming around us. And my fiance at the time was deathly allergic to bees. so. Don't worry, he doesn't die. Um, so the bees swarming around, and we're like, oh no, you know, the pic camera takes our picture, and we run over to the stump. I grab my camera, and we start hiking back down to the trailhead. And about halfway down, I'm like, where's my ring? Where's my ring? Maybe it's in my pocket. Maybe it's in my backpack. I bet I put it somewhere in my backpack. So we just keep on hiking. You know, I didn't tell them that I didn't have my ring. So we get to the trailhead, and I had that whole like seven, eight miles to think about where did I leave the ring? And then I was like, oh yeah, it was underneath the camera, darn. And so, you know, I didn't tell my fiance yet. We got home um, that night and we were eating dinner and I was like, hey, uh, I forgot the ring. I lost it. Um, I forgot it at the cabin. And he's like, really? The, the ring that I like almost lost my life to buy you. And I'm like, yep, that one. I'm like, but I know where it's at. It's on that stump. I bet you we can go back and get it. And he's like, okay, you're never going to get it again. Just, you're never going to find it. Just forget about it. I'll just buy you a new one. I'm like, nope, I'm going to find it. I know, I know it. And so 
I try and find a friend who has a four-wheeler so that we can just drive up there because it was a long hike. I found a friend, um, and there are a couple, and they're like, we can bring you up there. So we couldn't get there the weekend after. We got there two weeks after the ring was lost. And we drove up to the cabin, and the first thing I did was go over to the stump, you know, wasn't there. I'm like, okay, it's not there. Um, so I go into the cabin, and I was like, I should write in the guest book. I'll draw a picture of the ring. So I drew a picture, picture of the ring, put my number down, and we left. And I was like, maybe, maybe a squirrel got it. Maybe if I get a metal detector, and I can, like, metal detector around, and maybe a squirrel buried it. And so we ended up getting back to the trailhead, and my fiancé was sitting there with our other friend, and he was like, did you find it? And I'm like, no, it wasn't there. I'm like, but I'm going to find it. And he's like, no, just forget about it. You're never going to find it. And so I was like, okay, I need to think of something else. I'm going to get a metal detector. We um, asked to borrow someone's, someone else's four-wheeler, but it wasn't going to be available for another couple weeks. Um, but when I went up there and I looked in the guest book um, the second time, I noticed that the person after us wrote, um, they, they were like, it's a nice. It's so nice to be in, you know, in USA. And we went to a cabin, and they said from Germany, like they're from Germany. So I was like, okay. So I go home, and I try and write a letter to the BLM, and I'm like, hey, I think somebody from Germany went to the cabin right after we did. Can can you send them a letter to ask them if they have my ring, or can I send them a letter? And they're like, no, we don't want to give you their information. I was like, let me send you a letter, and you send it to them. So. I write this letter, it's really simple. It's like, I lost a ring. Do you have it? Just in case they don't speak English, you know? So um, I sent the letter. I have no idea if the BLM ever sent it or not, but in the meantime, I was able to get, um, my uncle let me borrow his four-wheeler. And so he was like, but the brakes aren't very good on it but you can still use it. And I'm like, okay, this thing was probably made before I was born. It was pretty old. And so we go back up to the cabin a second time to look for the ring, and I rented a metal detector. And we had our dog with us, and we make it up there. You know, I'm metal detecting around, um, nowhere to be found. But looked in the guest book again. No one had written anything again. And so... I'm like, okay, well, I guess we have to go back home because we didn't find the ring. So on our way down the hill, because most of it was upway to get to the cabin, we have no brakes. Like, like my uncle was like, the brakes aren't very good, but there was no brakes. So we're going down the hill in, like, first or second gear, and it's really loud. You know, we're in, um, and I have my dog in one hand and my metal detector in the other hand, and it's getting dark and my fiance's driving, and it's getting pretty dark. Like, it's like September, and it was pretty dark, and this, the, he hit the brakes a little bit, and it squealed, you know, like that, like an animal is dying squeal, like, I'm like, oh, no, this is not good. And I was like, don't press the brakes anymore. And he's like, okay, you know, and all of a sudden, this big, huge, hairy thing runs across the trail, and he, like, hits the brakes, and it sees us, and my dog sees it, and I'm like, oh, what do I, I can't, he's like, get the gun, get the gun, and I'm, like, hanging on to the dog and hanging on to the metal detector. I'm like, what one do I not hold on to? 
I didn't get the gun out. The bear ran in front of us and must have gotten spooked, but ran, and by that time, he, you know, geared up, and we were hauling ass down the hill, you know, with no brakes, and I'm like, go, 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 it's going to get us, you know. So we made it back to the trailhead, um, and, you know, he's like, yep, we're never going to find your ring. It's gone. And I'm like, okay, darn. So months go by, years go by, and I was in pharmacy school in Montana, and my fiancé was still here in Fairbanks, and we were meeting up in Seattle for Thanksgiving. And so on Thanksgiving morning, I get this phone call from an Alaska number. Um, it was the time before iPhone, so it was like I flipped it open, and I was like, hello? And they were like, I found a ring. And I'm like, What? Are you, are you, are, like, I was freaking out, and my fiancé was right next to me, and I'm like, they got the ring, they got the ring. And so I was like, where, where did you find it? How did you find it? How long have you had it? Like, I'm, it's been two years at least since. And so he said, well, you know, I, I usually go up to that cabin to go hunting every year. And, you know, I went up there, and we started setting up camp, and I, there was a ring on the log, and I just, you know, grabbed it and, was like, wow, there's just a ring out here. So he kept it, um, and his wife had put it on her pinky finger and w had worn it for two years. And he was like, how do I find this person who, whose ring this is? And so he goes to that cabin every year, and so he went um, the second year, he was like, I'm going to look in the guest book to see where we were hunting last time and see you know, how many days we stayed, and so he was looking through the guest book and saw that I drew the picture of the ring. And so he was like, yeah, I, I've put your number down, and I make a to-do list every year, and I have to get the to-do list done by Thanksgiving. So this was the last thing on my to-do list, was call the girl with the ring. So I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm like, I told you so, I told you so, and so my... Um, we made a plan for my fiancé to meet up with them because he was coming back to Fairbanks and I was going back to Missoula for pharmacy school. So I wasn't going to be able to get the ring from the people who had it. But we um, planned that they would go out to lunch, you know, and they would exchange the ring. And I still had, you know, a month or so before Christmas break, then I can come home and actually have the ring, you know. So I told my fiancé, I was like, you get the ring, you put it in a safe spot, don't lose it, you know, he's like, mm-hmm, yeah, and so he kept the ring safe, and he brought it to the airport when he came to pick me up um, during Christmas break, and I get off the plane, and I'm like, do you have the ring? He's like, yep, I do, so he um, pulls it out, and I put it on, I'm just like, oh, this is like, it was like coming home, you know, a piece of me was, I got it back, you know, it's like, oh, this is so awesome, and um, and, you know, I've never met the people who found the ring because they exchanged it with him. So if anyone knows these people, please let me know. Um, if anyone has heard this story before, it would be really awesome. Um, and I do still have the ring somewhere here. I do still have it. It's right here. Um, and even though the man and I um, who gave me this ring are now divorced, I am going to keep it for my, either one of my two boys if they want to use it as an engagement ring. Um, so that's my story. <laughs> Dawn Urbeck. 
She shared that story at our February 2022 live event in Fairbanks. This is Dark Winter Nights, true stories from Alaska, the lost and found episode. I'm Rob Prince. We here at Dark Winter Nights are gearing up for our first fall show since 2019. It will be the Saturday before Thanksgiving, November 19th, 2022 at 7 p.m. in Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium, like usual. We're actively recruiting storytellers for this next show, so if you've got a true story from Alaska you'd like to share with us, you can submit it at darkwinternights.com. People often ask me what kind of stories we're looking for. Well, whatever you got. (laughs) (laughs) start off by submitting it and then we'll let you know if it's something that's going to work for us or not but of course the rules are it needs to be a true story that happened in Alaska and preferably it happened to you but we're also interested in historical stories from Alaska as well and they don't all have to be bear stories I've got plenty of true stories from Alaska but none of them happen to be about bears okay I have one story about the time that I thought a squirrel was a bear but in my defense It was crawling along the forest floor over leaves, so it sounded about a thousand times bigger than than it was, and I couldn't see it, you know, it was like behind me. But other than that, I got no bear stories, and we're not just looking for near-death experiences, we're looking for all kinds of stories, stories that could technically have happened anywhere. Our goal in Dark Winter Nights is to share the real Alaska with the world, and the real Alaska certainly involves a lot of encounters with nature but it also involves a lot of more regular everyday kind of things like the time that someone mistook me for a motivational speaker or other <laughs> other things like that. That could happen anywhere. So if you've got a story you think might be good for us, please contact us, darkwinternights.com. I help our storytellers by coaching them to get the most out of their story so you don't have to worry about your story being perfect. And if you really are uncomfortable with the idea of getting up on stage and telling your story in front of a whole bunch of people, that's okay. We can also record the story one-on-one for our radio program like this or our podcast. So once again, darkwinternights.com is where you can submit. And also, I would like to deputize all of you to be, well, deputies for Dark Winter Nights. And if you hear a great story, please tell whoever told it that they should tell it on Dark Winter Nights as well because we want to capture these stories to share them with the world and to save them for future generations. DarkWinterNights.com is also where you can find a link for our brand new book, Cabin Stories, The Best of Dark Winter Nights. It's a collection of stories from the first years of our show. You can also find a link to our podcast full of Dark Winter Nights episodes carefully crafted to go very well with chopping wood or raking leaves or whatever outdoor chores you're sneaking in before the snow flies. The website, again, is darkwinternights.com. Our next story comes from me, and it's a cautionary tale about the importance of cleaning up after yourself after you finish a big project, 
or you might accidentally misplace something in a very, very dangerous way. It's also the story behind how I briefly got the nickname SpongeBob. The winter of 2008-2009 was a particularly difficult time for me and my family. My father was dying of cancer, and we had moved back to Michigan from Alaska to be near family. At the same time, I had gone to the bathroom and found blood in a place where you really don't want to find blood. But at that time, so overwhelmed with things, I decided that it would be best to just ignore this problem and hope that it went away on its own. In the spring of 2009, my dad died of cancer, and we decided to move back to Alaska. And at that time, I decided I really didn't want to put my daughter through what I had just been through of losing her father at such a young age. And so I decided to make an appointment with a doctor to get this whole thing checked out. I explained to the doctor what I had found, and he said it probably was nothing, but we should do a colonoscopy just to be sure. <laughs> at which point, I desperately tried to <laughs> backpedal and explain to him that he was right, it probably was nothing, and this was... <laughs> a colonoscopy was not necessary, but he insisted that this was the best way to go, so I relented and agreed to do it, and eventually went through the process of getting a colonoscopy, which is a process. The result of the exam was that he found a polyp in my colon, and unfortunately, not one of those easy polyps to remove. This one would require surgery to remove a portion of my polyp. On top of that, he said that the polyp was precancerous, so it was really good that we had caught this thing early. So, eventually the day came that I had to have the surgery, and it wasn't going to be too big of a deal. I would go in in the morning, have the polyp removed, and then recover in the hospital for a couple days before coming back home. And everything started out normal. I had the surgery in the morning and then was recovering in my room that afternoon when I started to develop a bit of a fever. Now, I had had surgery a year or two before on my abdomen and developed a little bit of a fever in the afternoon as well. So I, <laughs> I assured the nurse, ah, this is just what my body does. I get a little bit of a fever in the afternoon. It's nothing to worry about. <laughs> well, fortunately, she didn't listen to Dr. Prince, and she called the surgeon to see what he thought we should do. And the surgeon said that they should do an exam on me to make sure that nothing was wrong with the surgery. Now, if you've ever had abdominal surgery, you know that the only way you are comfortable is if you are lying completely still, not coughing, not laughing, not moving. If you're in that situation, you're fairly comfortable. But the slightest little bump, the slightest cough or laugh is incredibly painful after you've had abdominal surgery. So the process of taking me in my hospital bed downstairs was extremely painful. Every little crack, every little bump onto the elevator would send shock waves of pain through my body. And on top of that, what was waiting for me <laughs> was no picnic either. The exam involves pumping me full of liquid until I feel like I'm going to pop, laying me down on a hard, cold, stainless steel table, and then jostling me around so the machine can scan my intestines to see if anything's leaking. The particularly horrific thing about this table is it cannot move gently or slow. Every time the table moves, it's a jolt that sends more shock waves of pain through your body. And on top of that, I'm pumped full of so much liquid that I feel like at any minute now I'm going to pop and repaint this entire exam room a nice taupe. 
in the midst of this incredible discomfort, the surgeon walks into the room, leans over to me, and says, well, we messed up, except he didn't use the word messed. He chose a word that had a little bit more of a finer point on it to better describe exactly what had happened. We left a sponge in you, he said. In a brief moment of fleeting optimism, I said, where, like up in my colon? Can you just go up there and pull it out? And he's like, no, we left it inside you. We need to open you up again and pull it out. I have to say that will probably go down as one of the worst moments in my life. They let me relieve myself of the pressure in the bathroom and then loaded me up into the hospital bed again and brought me back up over all the little bumps and cracks to my hospital room where I waited a few more hours until it was time to have the second surgery that evening. The next day, the surgeon came to my room and apologized again and explained exactly what had gone down. He said that over the course of the surgery, they'd had 30 objects inside me, and when the surgery was over, they counted the objects, and they counted 29. So the nurse recounted, and in the second recount, she counted 30, so they thought they had everything, and they stitched me back up. But it turns out that the first count had been right, and the second count had been wrong. Which made me wonder later, why don't you do a tiebreaker? You got one vote for the not enough out, one vote for yes there is enough out. Let's do a tiebreaker and, you know, see who wins. The sponge they had left in me was not sort of your typical, like, dishwashing type sponge, but more of a kind of a flat sponge, I guess. More like a bandage. The surgeon felt bad for a variety of reasons, one of which was that this second surgery meant that I was going to have to spend an extra day recovering in the hospital. But really, in the end, it wasn't that huge of a deal. I called my friend in South Carolina to tell him the story, and he said, well, you're going to sue, aren't you? I said, I don't know. <laughs> it really wasn't that bad of a deal. Then I called my mom and explained the story to her, and she said, well, you wouldn't sue, would you? So, once again, mom always comes out <laughs> on my side. <laughs> The whole day after the surgery, Noah Hospital Administration came by to see me, which did start to bother me a little bit. But finally, the second day they came by and apologized for the situation and explained to me that the surgery would, of course, be free, at which point I determined, I guess they have a policy, sponge-free or it's free. It wasn't until years later that I realized what an incredible opportunity I had missed in my foggy post-surgery state. Why hadn't I asked for a year of free meals at the hospital cafeteria? Why hadn't I said that I wanted to appear in a hospital TV commercial as an important doctor with like other doctors circled around me listening to my incredible medical advice? It will certainly go down as one of the biggest missed opportunities of my life. A couple days later, I returned home from the hospital, not that much worse for wear, and sometime later returned to work where I regaled everyone with the story of how I had had a sponge left in me, and it was through my colleagues at work that I eventually got the nickname SpongeRob. That was me, Rob Prince, reminding you to always thoroughly clean up after yourself when you're completing a big project. As my mother used to hound us when we were kids, don't just leave a mess, follow through, follow through.
Thanks for listening to this edition of Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska, the Lost and Found episode. Today's program was edited by myself, Rob Prince. Story consultation by Lori Neufeld. Dark Winter Nights is gearing up for its first fall show since 2019. It will be the Saturday before Thanksgiving, November 19, 2022, at 7 o'clock p.m. in Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium. We are actively recruiting storytellers for this next show, so if you've got a true story from Alaska you'd like to share with us, please submit it at darkwinternights.com. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince.